Welcome, guys. So today we're finishing uh, the historical books, right? Um, we're looking at Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. So who of you guys have read those books? Who's read Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah? I just want to see, just want to gauge where people are, knowledge-wise. Okay, cool. So this first session, we're going to do Ezra and Nehemiah together because in the Hebrew Bible, they, they are one book, right? Uh, in our Bibles, they're two different books, but we will look at them as, <clears throat> sorry, we'll look at them as one. In the Hebrew tradition, they are one book under the name Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are, are both called Ezra. And so you can think of Nehemiah as the second half or the second part of Ezra, right? So... We had our timeline here, but somebody tried to get rid of it, but the Lord sustains it. Um, just to refresh your minds, we've looked at the history of Israel from the time when they were ruled by the judges, which was a period of 400 years. And then Israel became a monarchy, and under the monarchy, the first king we saw was Saul. So there was the reign of Saul, followed by the reign of David, and then Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was split. Uh, it split into north and the south. The north was called Israel, and the south was called Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom went into exile at 722 BC under the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom goes into exile in 586 under the Babylonians, right? The Babylonian Empire. Um, now, the Israelites are in Babylon, but eventually the Babylon Empire is defeated and conquered by the Medo Persian Empire. And Babylon itself is conquered in 539 BC by Cyrus, right? Cyrus is the Medo-Persian em emperor. And then in 538 BC, we get the decree of Cyrus. He's the emperor, so he has the power and authority to let the Jews go free and go back to the land, go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then last week, we looked at Chronicles. And if you look at Second Chronicles, uh, just the last page, right, the last chapter, verse 22, says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Right? And then Cyrus gives his decree. And remember, a decree is an official order of the law. Right? So by law, now the Jews are allowed to go back to the land and rebuild the temple. And then we get to the book of Ezra. And if you turn to the book of Ezra, see how it begins. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the, year, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So you notice how it's exactly like what we read in Chronicles, right? So Ezra begins where Chronicles ended. And the first few chapters of uh, Ezra, the first six chapters, they deal with the lives of the Jews and what happened to them before Ezra arrives, before Ezra gets to Israel. So that's how the book is structured. The first six chapters uh, document the lives of the Jews. And then the last few chapters, chapter 7 to 10, is about the main character, Ezra. So you can see the map that I have up here. Um, the green parts is the Babylonian Empire. So they had conquered and they ruled over all of that space right? Um, everywhere where you see that's green. Um, 
So Cyrus had, was now in charge of all of this land that you see over here. And you can see Jerusalem is also part of the green part. So Jerusalem was also captured in the empire, right? Um, so uh, I'll refer to a few locations in this map as we go. Uh, you can see Babylon, Babylon there, that's the main city. So when they were let go, they made this trek, this whole long trek all the way back to Jerusalem. And then there's also this city called Susa. When we look at, I think it's also mentioned in Ezra. And when we look at Esther, it'll mention Susa because that's where all the key events happen. So what is Ezra about? Um, these are the themes that we'll find as we go throughout this book, right? Uh, in both Ezra and Nehemiah. So the first one is echoes of the Exodus, right? Uh, you'll see a lot of similarities to the Exodus. The second theme is the temple and rebuilding it, right? Something that we spent a lot of time looking at last week. And then the third thing is images of holy war. So these are themes that we've talked about, we've discussed before, and we'll see them come up in Ezra as well. So remember that in Babylon, the people of God are in bondage, right? To a certain degree. So it's not like Egypt, you know, where they're complete slaves and um, they're not allowed to, you know, they, 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 they have liberty, they have freedom to a certain degree. And they are those that flourish in that society. They are Jews who flourish there. So uh, they are still in bondage, but without freedom. And when they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem, when Cyrus lets them go back to their land uh, to rebuild, a lot of the language that's used to describe that event and that time period is reminiscent of the book of Exodus, right? And the people being delivered out of Egypt. So think back to Exodus. When the children of Egypt, sorry, when the children of Israel left Egypt, did they leave empty-handed? They left with silver and gold and jewelry and plunder, right? Uh, here, when the children of Israel leave Babylon, they are given silver and gold as well. So look at verse 9 of chapter 1. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia, from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So there's echoes of Egypt throughout this account because it is a type of exodus, right? God has delivered them. He sovereignly superintended everything. In verse 1, when it speaks of Cyrus giving his decree, what does it say? It says the Lord, it's the Lord who stirs up the spirit in, in Cyrus, king of Persia. And the Lord did this so that his people can now go back to Jerusalem, back to their land, and fulfill what God had commanded them, right? In chapter 2, the exiles return and their number is given. And it's actually not a lot of people who return, right? Their size is quite small. Um, remember, it was a small percentage of those who were taken into exile to begin with. But when they're in exile, their number starts to grow, right? They start to increase in number um, so that when they do go back, you know, they're a bigger population than they were going in. Uh, but overall, you don't have a massive number of people returning back to Jerusalem. In chapter 3, they rebuild the altar. The first thing they do when they get to Jerusalem is they start to build an altar. Any ideas on the symbolism and meanings of uh, altars and building altars? You guys have any thoughts on what that signifies? Place of worship. Place of worship. Okay. 
No one else? Remind of what God has done. So as a marker of being in God's presence, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, under the Mosaic law, right? So, uh, altars were there for sacrifices, right? Uh, that's what they they do. They build them up, um, and then they do they perform sacrifices over them. But they also communicated something else. So remember, in Genesis, they were building altars all over the place, right? You read, and then uh, Jacob goes here, and then he built an altar to the Lord in the morning, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and this was before the Mosaic law was given, right? Before the Mosaic law is given with all the sacrifices that we read about and learned about in Leviticus. Um, so the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would go to a place and they would build an altar and um, they would consecrate themselves to the Lord. Uh, they dedicate themselves to the Lord. A lot of what you guys were uh, saying, right? But that, so those are certain aspects of it. But remember what God had promised Abraham, promised Abraham land and descendants, right? So where, if you notice where they build these altars is in the land that God has given them, right? So it's kind of like a marker to claim the land, almost like putting a flag on a territory to say, this is God's place, this is God's land, and God has given us this. So uh, altars were also a form of saying God has promised this land and we are going to build uh, an altar here as a means to show that we have faith in him, right? Uh, this symbolism, they are remembering the promises that he has made. Uh, this is the land that God has given to us and so we are building an altar here and we're trusting the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 27, Moses instructs the people that when they cross the, river, the, the Jordan River into the promised land, what's the first thing that they should do? It's to build an altar, Right? And so when the people get back to Jerusalem, it's the first thing that they do, right? Before they do anything, they build an altar. And verse 2 of chapter 3 says, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the, the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the Feast of Booths. So now we're told in verse 1 of, of chapter 3 that it's the seventh month, right? You might remember from last week when we looked at the building of the temple, it took Solomon how many years to build the temple? Seven years, right? And it was, ded it was dedicated in which month? seventh month, right? And when they dedicated it, uh, they had the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is a feast that lasts how many days? <laughs> oh, how did you guys know? <laughs> so uh, they celebrate using the Feast of Booths, right? If you remember, that was a festival which involved all the Israelites living in booths or tents for a week, right? And they did this to remind themselves of their lifestyle in the wilderness, 
right, to remember how God got them through the wilderness. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the symbolism that we see there, right? People, the people get back to rebuilding the temple, and the language that is used echoes the building of the first temple, Solomon's temple. And we don't have time to go into it, but there's all these little references back to building Solomon's temple. So verse 8, for example, says, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. So they start to build the temple in the second month. In the second month is also when Solomon started to, be, uh, started to build the temple. And if you put yourself in their shoes, right, you're a small group of people returning from exile, returning from uh, Babylon, and you've returned to a land of ruins. There are, foreigners, there are foreigners who've come in and have started taking over and surrounding the land. And so, of course, they're afraid, right? That's what the, te- the text tells us. They're afraid because there's enemies surrounding them, surrounding them, and they have to build a temple. So you have to build a temple, but there's people, you know, lurking about who could attack you at any moment. And so... The people, the builders laid down the foundation of the temple and the people rejoice, right? They praise God, but sadness is mixed in with this rejoicing. So look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, all men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So why are the older people who must have been in their 80s or 90s, why are they crying? You know, why are they weeping out loud when they see this temple? Like they're thinking back to the glory days yeah, of the old temple. So, basically, they remember the glory of Solomon's temple, right? And I think, I don't think they're looking at it through a, you know, rose-tinted windows. I think even when you look at, like, the materials that are involved, you know, you can't really compare to Solomon's one. So, it seems like this temple really doesn't compare to Solomon's one, you know? Um, it's, 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 it's not as amazing as Solomon's one uh, was. So they look at this and it's pathetic in comparison, right? And it's only the foundation that's been laid, right? They look at the foundation and already they're like, you know, they start weeping, they start crying. Um, and yet when we get to the prophets, right? When you get to the prophets, I think it's Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel prophesies a mind-blowing temple, right? He says there's going to be a second temple that's built. It's going to be amazing, mind-blowing out of this world, and yet we get to this account and it's like, okay, but this doesn't even compare to Solomon's one. So what's going on there? Well, we should know by now, right, that the temple points to Christ. And that is the temple that Ezekiel sees in the vision, right? That is so mind-blowingly amazing that he can't even describe it. So I think that's what's going on here. It's that uh, it, it really doesn't compare to Solomon's temple. It's just, you know, 
Maybe their eyes were working, even though they were old. But in building the temple, the people run into opposition. So look at chapter 4. The people around them, the nations uh, around, start to harass them, and they try to discourage the Israelites. So verse 4 says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they use intimidation and bribery. They're using the uh, political means to get the Israelites to stop building. They even write a letter to the king, and it works, right? The Israelites actually stop building the temple. They stop building in 536 BC, and they stop building for 16 years. So 16 years, they just put down their tools and they leave the temple as it is. They only resume in 520 BC. So they're feeling threatened. They feel afraid. The kings told them to stop building the temple as well, and so they stop. When they stop building the temple, what do they start doing? Well, we know from the prophets, the books of the prophets, that they started building their own houses, right? So they stopped focusing on the temple and started focusing on their personal lives and just making their own lives comfortable. So go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with him, supporting them. So the Lord sends the prophets to the people, and when the prophets show up, you know, they talk to the people, and uh, they get the people to start uh, re to resume building the temple, and they finish it in 516 BC. Right? And you notice, you see the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who we'll read about later, and you might be getting confused with uh, the timelines. So uh, think, of, think of scripture and we don't have our timeline here anymore, but think of the history there as like uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? All of you guys are familiar with that. Where, no? No? <laughs> wow, okay. Um, so the Marvel Cinematic Universe is basically like one timeline, but you have different movies focusing on different characters. Right, so this character would appear in this movie and this movie, and they'll get together here, and then later on, this person will have their own movie focusing on them. Same thing with scripture, right? There's one timeline, but you'll see Haggai and Zechariah appearing in this book, right? But then they'll have their own book later, and so this this diagram over here kind of illustrates it, right? So think of the timeline going from here left to right, right? So this is 970 BC. That's when I think the reign of Solomon, and then the reign of Solomon ends, and then the kingdom splits, right? Splits into the northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. And then you can see these are all the prophets, and these are the times that they appear in a straight timeline. So remember, scripture is not organized according to times. It's organized according to category, right? Uh, the Pentateuch, historical books, prophets. So this kind of gives you an idea of who comes when at what period in time. So uh, you know Jeremiah. Jeremiah is before the exile because he's there to warn them that you will be um, captured and you'll be taken into exile, right? And then the exile happens. And for example, we get Daniel. Daniel is during the exile. And so this, this kind of helps you, uh, I hope, just like place you in, in where it's happening in history. 
Um, and in the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, actually, I think they are the last books to happen, to happen uh, chronologically. Um, so they probably come around this time. Um, so even though Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, uh, Ezra is probably the last one, historically speaking. And then there's the 400-year silence, inverted commas, and then the New Testament, right? So is everyone with me there? Okay. <clears throat> so God sends the prophets, right? And they get the people to resume building, and eventually they finish it in 516 BC. The second temple is now finished. Now, the adversaries remind us of holy war, right? In Chronicles, the command from the Lord was to rebuild the temple, right? Focus on the temple and the Davidic line. And what do the adversaries do? They play dirty. They use bribery, corruption, slander, and lies to stop the people of God from doing what God had told them to do, right? So how do we apply these principles to us today, living now? So look at what we've seen so far in Ezra, right? There's an exodus that's occurring. We leave Egypt, which is to say we leave the system of this world, right? We leave Babylon and we move to Jerusalem. And so in the same way, when we get saved, we leave the kingdom of darkness and we move into light, right? The kingdom of light. And now sanctification is an ongoing fight and battle because we are tempted, right? Uh, Doug Wilson once said that, the children in Israel left Egypt long before Egypt left their hearts, right? So basically, um, the Israelites left Egypt, but Egypt was still with them, right? In their hearts, they were still slaves. They were still slaves to sin and their past lifestyles. And so that is the temptation for us as well, right? We still wrestle with the old man. Even though Christ has saved us, we still have to fight the Egypt um, from our Egyptian days, right? And... So that is the battle. That, that's, the, that's one of the adversaries we have itself, right? The old man. Um, it's the system of the world, right? The world where Satan is in charge and we are under his in, influence and power. Uh, it's a world with a satanic worldview, right? And that is our worldview before Christ. Before we are saved, we have a satanic worldview. But Jesus is Lord over everything. And because Jesus is Lord over everything and he created everything, everything in this world belongs to Christ, Right? Satan creates nothing. He only perverts everything. And so the satanic worldview touches everything that belongs to Christ and just perverts it, right? Whether it's arts, culture, literature, music, um, sex, sports, relationships, career, family, marriage, work, everything you can think of, every aspect of life, right? Satan is the god of this world. So you and I are taken out of that antichrist system, but we are always tempted to go back, right? Our hearts are prone to wonder, uh, our flesh is an adversary. Satan is an adversary. And just, how, just like how the Jews are to build up the temple, so are we to build up the church, right? Bringing about the kingdom of God. Spiritual growth. We talked about spiritual growth and numerical growth last week. Making disciples. Um, some say it's not about numbers, it's about fruit. Others say it is about numbers and they forget about fruit. You know, when scripture emphasizes both, Right? Uh, even in scripture, you have numbering going all over the place. When we read the book of Acts, it tells us how many people we are saved, right? Uh, 3,000 people were saved, uh, 5,000 people were saved here. Uh, in Revelation, we told about a great multitude that we can't even number, right? So uh, numbers are important, but we also care that we should become more like Christ, right? We care about producing fruit in our lives. 
And this is the work of building up the church. And so it's interesting and it's appropriate that in the Gospels, the language that is used is that of a kingdom and war, right? Uh, we bring in God's kingdom um, and yet there will be people opposed to this kingdom, right? We will have people, we will have adversaries who will want us to stop. Just like the Israelites had to endure, we will also see our adversaries playing dirty, using bribery, corruption, slander, lies to stop the people of God from doing what God has told them to do, right? Uh, which is to make disciples of all the nations. So we are in a holy war. Um, there will be opposition, maybe from your family members who disagree with Christianity, uh, from your friends who now reject you because you are holier than thou, uh, maybe from work colleagues who report you for your uninclusive, hateful, bigoted beliefs. Um, there will be adversaries in your faith walk, right? There's also going to be contending for the faith, so where we have to deal with false teaching and uh, wolves in, sh in wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, false teachers within the church. So there's a lot of fighting that we have to do. That is the point, right? Uh, it's a war, and you know there's hardly any rest in a war, sadly. So our lives are going to just be a lot of struggle. But you know, thankfully, Christ is with us to enable us to fight. So I hope that when you do read through these books, you know, you will see how um, you can apply them to your own walk. Right. When you read them at first, they can seem weird or it's like, OK, it's just, you know, what happened back then? Um, what has that got to do with me? But when you see these themes unpacked in the New Testament, you see that it's amazing. This applies directly to me. You know, I can use it in my life, in my walk, in understanding who the Lord is. So all that to say, you can't do your devotion from Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. Um, so the people had stopped building. What else was wrong with that? The king had said stop, but what did God want them to do? Want them to build, right? They know that, and that's why the prophets ended up coming. And, and they had to tell them, you're spending money on your own, own house, but the temple is in ruins. What is wrong with you? So if our government said you can't say homosexuality is a sin, you have to call a man a woman and a woman a man, there are 73 genders plus two bonus ones, and you must recognize that. How do you respond? Do you know? How do you respond to that? No, I'll, it's not true. There's only two genders. But, you know, with, with everyone and their pronouns and all that stuff. Um, it's interesting. You know how, like, they say there's a wage gap. Yeah, what's the wage gap between all 73 genders? I was just thinking. Anyways, um, how do you respond, you know, when government says... Don't do this. And maybe, maybe those are ex uh, obvious examples, right? What if the government says you're not allowed to discipline your child anymore? You know? Which they've already said. You know you're not allowed to discipline your child. What if there's law that forces you to send them to a public school? Um, what if, uh, you know, subtle things like that? What, what, do you, what, what, what then do we say? What do, how do we respond? Well, we have to continue to be faithful to God. Right? You have to refuse and say, no, you know, we, we fear God and not men. Um, and so the Bible also teaches that sometimes it's better just to run. Right? Uh, Jesus said that if they persecute you in one place, then go to another. Right? Uh, I don't think it's helpful to de develop a martyr complex where you just think, yes, we're doing the Christ honor thing. Let's go die. You know? uh, we're not to be pursuing persecution. 
uh, we should be fleeing it, but you know, where we have to make a stand, we have to make a stand. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and all that to say is, uh, is that when our focus is what Christ has said, which is seeking first the kingdom of God, it will change your whole life, right? It will change every aspect of your life because your whole life will be centered around God's kingdom and not what you find comfort in, in this life, you know? Um, when people move to a different city or even a different country for work or to be closer to family, one of the first things I think that you should prioritize is where will I fellowship? Will there be a church there? And sadly, people just, you know, make those decisions and it's kind of like uh, something in the back of their mind. Like, oh yeah, you know, we'll find a church. We'll see what happens when it should be priority, right? The kingdom of God. How will I be serving where I'm going? Um, when people move to other countries, you know, they're leaving South Africa, going to the UK, Australia, whatever. Um, it, it's all good, you know, it's all fine to go and for your own reasons, but will you be able to seek the kingdom of God there? Will you be able to serve? You know, that should be your main priority there. Um, our whole life should be centered around building the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with moving to a city for work and school and all these things, whatever the reason, right? The point I'm trying to make is don't make the kingdom of God an option in your life, you know? Don't make it an appendix, no, an appendum. Is it appendum? Appendix. It's a don't make it an appendix to your life, you know? It's like just, okay, we'll see what happens here. Um, it should be the main thing, right? And then everything else revolves around that. So it's only in chapter 7 where we are introduced to Ezra. And this is much later in our timeline in history. So this is around 458 BC. Ezra comes from Babylonia, verse 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the, for the, good, of, sorry, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is such an important passage for Christians, right? For all Christians. Um, uh, and I want to say especially, I want to say especially those involved in ministry, but really all Christians are involved in ministry, right? The call to make disciples goes, to, goes out to everyone. Um, so this passage is especially relevant for all of you right now. Notice the repetition that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And that is something that you and I must desire, right? Because as much as you and I work to build up the temple, uh, to build up the church, what does Psalm 127 teach us? Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain, right? So unless the Lord is with us in, in all we do, in everything we do, it will be in vain, so seek to know the Lord's hand upon your life, right? How you can do that practically is to pursue a holy life, right? The correlation is holiness. There's a direct correlation between holiness and the Lord's hand upon your life. So if you've done maths before, statistics, you know, correlation does not mean causation, right? Which is to say, you being holy does not cause the hand of the Lord to be on your life. There's just a correlation, Right, just just want to make sure you guys are hearing me clearly. Um, so we're told that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses, right, uh, in the Pentateuch, in the in the books of Moses, 
and he had set his heart to study the law, to do it and to teach it. So those who are in ministry, all believers, right? All of you disciple makers, you need to study. You need to study God's word. Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourselves approved, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. So don't think the very wrong thought that that's just the pastor's job, right? Um, that's just for Mike and Lelo to do. No, those who disciple others need to do the same. You need to disciple others in what you know, right? If you don't know God's word, how can you disciple someone else? Uh, when you disciple someone, you need to walk with them, right? You, you walk with them in their lives. So you need to show them uh, the way of Christ. And how can you be doing that if you yourself are not obeying Christ, right? Um, if you're not doing that, then how is the person you're discipling able to imitate you as you imitate Christ? Um, and you must be teaching those who disciple you, right? So you teach those that you disciple the way of the Lord. Um, they are ministers who don't know the Bible, right? But, you know, they live right um, and that's like one extreme. And then there's ministers who know scripture from front to back, you know, um, but they don't live it at all. Um, we, should, we shouldn't be on either extreme. We should be balanced, right? We should know the word and we should live it out. Uh, we need both. We need to know God's word and we need to live it. And so the instruction for you this evening is to study and obey because that's what it goes down to, comes down to. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, they are called the Reformers, right? Uh, you guys go to Reformed Church, very familiar with that title. Ezra and Nehemiah are called Reformers because they reform Israel, right? They arrive in Jerusalem and they instill God's laws to the post-exile Jewish nation, right? But why is the Reformation needed in the first place? Look at chapter 9, verse 1, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites to the Hittites to the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with peoples of the lands. And in this, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So this is what the official reports to Ezra. And Ezra responds in verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. So Ezra mourns, right, in typical fashion that we see in the Old Testament. These guys were always dramatic. But it's justified, right, because the people are sinning horribly. It grieves him. It grieves him because of the sin of the people. Uh, the people are intermarrying with people from different nations. And Ezra is a reformer because he leads people back to God and his law, right? He leads the people back to God's word. And, <clears throat> sorry. And this reformation begins with him leading the community in an act of repentance. So Ezra cries out to the Lord in chapter 10, and they make a covenant with the Lord. So chapter 10, verse 3. Therefore... Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all, all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So the people have intermarried, bringing false religion and idolatry. The people then repent and so they divorce their wives and send them back home, back to their own lands. Does that fit with the rest of the teaching in Scripture? doesn't. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. What, what do you guys think? Okay, interesting. So you think it's justified in a certain, to a certain degree? Yeah. Um, okay, no, it's fine, it's fine. Yes. I think it's justified because these people knew the law beforehand. Like, it's like us knowing um, the law, uh, God's word now, mm-hmm. and then we choose to marry outside of Christianity. Whereas in Corinthians, I, I believe that the people didn't know. When Paul was telling them that if one is married to a man, one another, they should stay with them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's why I think in this case it's justified because it wasn't the people had already knew what God's view is. Okay. On so. Okay. So you think it's justified because they knew they had broken the law, mm-hmm. and now they're kind of repenting by saying, "Okay, mm-hmm. take these wives back, yeah, or go so home." It's Yeah, but they married. That's the thing. Yeah, they married. But I feel like it's sort of like the same thing when people are engaged in the bathroom marriage and they're already having uh, sex, and then the pastor says, "No, stop. You need to learn from each other." And yeah. it's like in the act of repentance, you stop mm. doing. Okay. That Percy wanted to say something. Okay, interesting. Well, Warren, did you have your? No, no. I, I saw the meaning with uh, Percy. With Percy. Yeah. Okay. It's not really justified. Like they had already had children and families and descended from those people already. Mm. Yeah, I'm so eager to get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyone else? Just the last one. Yes. Uh, of 
Okay. So, okay, wait, where our start is, I think if you want to focus in on the issue, it's divorce, right? So, is, was it lawful for them to kind of divorce the wives like this, right? And first thing is, divorce is not always illegitimate, right? Uh, God divorced Israel, right? Took them back uh, eventually, but since God did it, it can't always be sinful, right? But what are the legitimate reasons for divorce. So one we all know is adultery, right? If you go to Exodus 21, that's where you, you learn about that, as well as desertion, right? So if you're abandoned by your husband, then you're permitted to uh, divorce him legally, right? To divorce before the Lord. Um, and I think physical abuse also falls under that uh, category as well. And also, remember, if an unbelieving spouse leaves right? He or she is free to go, right? You're now divorced before the Lord, before the eyes of the Lord, at least. But I think this is a different situation. It seems like it's saying, kick them out, right? Like, pack your bags, go, it's done, right? And yet, when we read this, all the people, even the priests, had married wives who were unbelieving, right? And when we get to the prophets, we'll see that they actually were leaving their Jewish wives to marry wives from other nations, to marry the Canaanites, right? So it almost seems like the whole nation is married to all uh, these, these women from different nations, right? So the whole nation is going to get divorced, right? So they can all save money and just file under one lawsuit and, you know, get it over and done with. Um, but if you read on, you realize that they actually spend months interviewing every single person, right? And then we are given a list of the people that end up getting divorced. So read from verse 18. See all those names over there? Notice how long the list is. It's actually not very long, considering the population of Israel, right? So we read the men are, are marrying women from other tribes who are continuing to serve false gods, right? And we know contextually that pagan women were mostly involved in sexual immorality as part of their worship, right? Um, so these, these ladies may well have been temple prostitutes, right? Which would then be legitimate grounds for divorce. Because if you're a temple prostitute, then like the minute you go to work, you, you kind of, you know, you qualify for divorce. Um, so maybe, right, uh, if, if you piece it together, what seems to have happened is they go through the interview process, they, you know, sitting everyone down, um, what seems to have happened is a lot of the ladies, a lot of the women proselytized and became Jewish, right? The few who decided, no, you know, I'm not going to become Jewish. I'm going to continue my ways. Those are the ones who end up getting a divorce. Does that make sense? So I think that's what happens with this passage. So there were legitimate divorces um, on the grounds of, we can assume, sexual immorality uh, or other uh, push comes to shove, then the, the spouse, the unbelieving spouse abandoning you, Right? So, which makes sense because Ezra is a man skilled in the law of God. So he knows that you can't just divorce people, you know. Um, so yeah, that's that there. I hope that clears up or makes sense. Any questions on that? Yes, Dume. So... 
Uh, where do we get desertion from again? get that for you i'll get like all the scriptures for you because i can't think of them at the top of my head but yeah yes no it's not sexual immorality yeah i mean it's a spiritual adultery but you know that's between that person and the lord not necessarily you too. So uh, it's not grounds for divorce. I, I, don't, I don't see it as grounds for divorce. So, yeah, it's not. <laughs> choose, choose wisely. When, you, when it comes to marriage, choose wisely. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up quickly. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what we get with Ezra, right? He's skilled in the law of God, and through this skill, he teaches the law of the Lord to the land, right? And what he does is basically he builds like a spiritual wall around the people of God for protection, right? That they may know God's word and be safe from idolatry and worldliness and knowledge of God uh, and his word keeps us from lies and deceit and the schemes of Satan, right? Where Ezra is all about the spiritual wall, Nehemiah comes along and he builds a physical wall, right, around the people of God. So let's turn to the book of Nehemiah quickly. So who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is the son of Hekeliah and Nehemiah has a very high position in the land. He's cupbearer to the king, right? Cupbearer may sound like a very low job. You just bring the cup to the king, but it was a very important job, right? You were in charge of serving the king and you'd bring, uh, you would serve wine to the king. But because poisoning was such a common method to kill uh, kings and people in high positions, uh, the cupbearer would actually take a sip from the, from the wine. And then if he was okay, then it was okay for the king to drink, right? So he was there to protect his life, essentially. Um, and it was a powerful position because you had the ear of the king, because you had to be trustworthy and loyal, right? And it was a wealthy position because you'll see Nehemiah has tremendous wealth. He's got a lot of money. And in this book, we see, in this book, we see Jewish people rise to incredible heights in pagan societies, right? And Jewish people are a very remarkable people, right? They're very special people, I think, at least. For their number, for their total size and population, the influence they've had in the world is incredible, right? Such a small people have made such a big impact in, in world history, whether it's whether good or bad. Uh, many of the greatest thinkers, scientists, artists, you name it, right? Jewish 
Um, Einstein was Jewish, for example, and he's seen as one of the smartest people we've ever been. Even the philosophers who end up, uh, you know, turning from God, some of the greatest minds were Jewish. Um, even in industry, you know, the banking world, finance, whatever it is, you know, they tend to rise to the top. Think of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a genius, right? Paul was a genius. You might not get that when you read it, but he was like next level thinker. Um, and he was Jewish. Um, Nehemiah rises to the top. Daniel, uh, Esther, a lot of people, a whole lot of people that we see in scripture. And so Nehemiah, in chapter one, he leaves his high ranking, high status, comfortable job. And he travels back to Jerusalem because he hears that the walls are in a state of disrepair, right? And it grieves him. He cares about God's people and God's land, and he prays for God's favor to be upon his people. And so he goes back to the land. And in chapter two, he comes along and he exhorts his fellow countrymen to build up the wall, right? Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah tells them to build the, the wall, sorry, to build a wall and the Lord will uh, make them prosper. And chapter three, so often Nehemiah is used as like a leadership book or a model of leadership because he's a great administrator. I mean, he's able to motivate the people to build the walls. He even gets families involved in building uh, the wall, right? And you'll see that in chapter three. It seems like all of the land is involved in building. Um, all the people are working together systematically to get the walls up. And notice that uh, just like how Ezra had gotten the whole land to turn from their sin, to repent, now we see that the people have responded to Nehemiah's challenge, right? They believe the promise that, of Nehemiah that God will make them prosper. And so everyone is involved in building. In chapter 4, because there's oppositions from op uh, adversaries attacking them, they would build with one, a sword in one hand and it's called a trough, right? A trough in another hand, right? So it's kind of like an amazing picture. You know, you're building here, you've got a sword ready to stab someone else over here. But it's a great picture of the Christian life, right? It summarizes what our life should be about. Uh, firstly, building the kingdom with the trough in one hand, right? Making disciples and evangelizing. Secondly, fighting sin. You know, false teaching, ungodly oppression with the sword, so Nehemiah is able to build a wall in 52 days, right? And he's a man of prayer. That is one of the things you'll notice about him as you read this book. He prays long prayers, and then he prays tiny, short prayers, like you find in chapter 2. Sorry, yes, it is chapter 2 of verse 4 and verse 4. So chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, so like even in that passage, like he's in conversation with the king and then the king asks him a question and then he prays and then he answers. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, right there, you know, while in conversation, you can pray in your heart to the Lord. And that's the privilege that you and I have, right? In a job interview, in a difficult situation, in a, in a stressful situation, a tough conversation with someone, then pray. You know, whatever the case may be, you have that privilege, you have that access to the Lord. And so he rebuilds a wall. In chapter 5, he stops the oppression of the poor. And we see that he's a very generous man, right? So verse 17 in chapter 5 says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, 
Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my, my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. So he pays for it himself, right? That is a lot of food. Um, so it must have cost a fortune. It's almost like hosting a wedding every, every night, you know? Um, and he pays for it himself. So it shows you how rich he was because he was probably the second most powerful man in the land. Um, he has a huge house that the king built for him. And you, must, you can imagine how big the dining room must be if it can seat 150 people in it every single day. And so the example of Nehemiah we can learn from is using what we have for the sake of the kingdom, right? He's incredibly wealthy, but look at what he's doing with his wealth, right? And we need more people who can make more money, uh, who can get wealth, and they can use it for the advancing of the gospel to fund missionaries, church plants, uh, ministries, etc., etc. And so eventually they finish the wall. Um, and then in the second section, Ezra, uh, Ezra brings about spiritual revival to Jerusalem. So I'm just going to summarize uh, what happens. So in chapter 8, he reads the law of Moses aloud to all the people. And the nation rededicates itself to obeying the law, to obeying the Lord. In chapter 9, Nehemiah works very hard and diligently to point the people back to the law of Moses. Uh, he reads the Mosaic law to the people. The Feast of Booths is kept and a great act of covenant renewal is performed. And then in the rest of the book, you'll see from chapter 11, there's a census of the Jews in the land. And then the people worship in chapter 12. And Nehemiah just keeps pointing them to God's word. And that's, that's where we end in Nehemiah. Any questions? Let's take a five-minute break, ten-minute break.